Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello. Hi, all. Let me just adjusting sound here to make sure. Can you guys hear me well? We can hear you very well. Okay, good. Noah, thanks for doing this. I know you had to juggle a hundred things. Sure. No, no. I'm, I'm glad we were able to work the timing out. Thank you for asking me. Thank you. And also, I've been one of those people who I think for about 20 years now has been, oh, you must know Noah Feldman. And I've always said, no, but you're the 74th person who said that. So now I'm actually able to say, yes, I do. Funnily enough, I was talking to him on a Zoom call. There you go. And Poppy, I do know you. I don't know whether you remember, we met years ago, I think when you were in Downing Street. That's right. Stephen, hello there. Thank you for joining us. I don't know why people in radio always ask what you had for breakfast, but why don't you tell us what you had for breakfast? Uh, Okay, I had um, an omelette for breakfast. Did you really? Yes, I did. That's good living. I'm just checking with my colleague Katie, who's going under the name of Matt in this, as part of our battle for truth. Even Katie is a deep fake. Um, Katie, is that all right in terms of the sound? Hello, and welcome to A Thinking. I'm James Harding, and I think it's fair to say that in today's battle for truth, there is one business that has become the battlefield. In the fights over facts and fake news, over accuracy and accountability, in the battle that seems to be consuming all of us over who and what we can trust, there is that one company that somehow finds itself the home to every argument, that seems to play host to a war on all fronts. That is, of course, Facebook. And you may say that, well, in saying that, I've already made up my mind, that I start this thinking with a point of view. And you'd be right, I do. For some years now, I've been worried that democracy is in a losing battle with technology. I've looked on at the standoff between Capitol Hill and Silicon Valley, between the hill and the valley, and marveled at government's failure to stop tech's assault on trust and truth, polarization, privacy, and political manipulation. And increasingly, when the big tech CEOs head to Washington to appear in front of those congressional hearings, you can't help but feeling that it's government ignorance and impotence that's on parade. It's as if the politicians, not the execs, are in the dock. And in all this, I suppose it's the case that practically, as well as symbolically, it all feels as though it sits with Facebook. Democracy is up shit creek. 
and Mark Zuckerberg, it seems, has the paddle. There are any number of examples or incidents from around the world that we could take as Exhibit A in Zuckerberg's own battle for truth. Facebook enabling genocide in Myanmar. Some of the most inflammatory speeches have been made by this monk on YouTube and Facebook. The social media site has been used to incite violence against Rohingya refugees living in the country's Rakhine state. The evidence is that in Myanmar, a country pushing out Rohingya Muslims, Facebook has been hopelessly ill-equipped to deal with dangerously violent posts. Cambridge Analytica's wholesale data breach for political ends. The data of as many as 87 million of its users may have been improperly shared with Cambridge Analytica. This is all down to widespread criticism of how Facebook protects your data. And it was my mistake, and I'm sorry. The anti-vaxxer conspiracy theories that go viral. Hobbs' story is a call for social media companies to face tough financial and criminal penalties if they fail to clamp down on anti-vaccine content. The to and fro over Holocaust denial. Instagram influencers peddling lies, insecurity and hatred. And of course, the big lie. That is why I am determined to protect our election system, which is now under coordinated assault and siege. Facebook's role in Donald Trump's claim to a landslide election victory in 2020. Facebook is pulling down groups aiming to oppose election results, including ones organizing action with the hashtag Stop the Steal. Have found posts since the insurrection on January 6th praising or calling for more violence on Facebook. But for this thinking, you'll be pleased to hear we're not going to start with any of that. We're going to start somewhere else entirely. We're going to begin with a sunny day and a bike ride. It's 2017, and Noah Feldman, the author, academic, and professor of law at Harvard, has been staying with his college friend, Sheryl Sandberg, who's Zuckerberg's right hand at Facebook. They're just outside Menlo Park in California, And Noah Feldman decides to head out for a bicycle ride. As you can see that I'm rather warming my theme here. I'm rather tempted to start embellishing the story. Some facts are too good to check, as the old journalistic jibe goes. But you'll be pleased to know I don't need to do that, because Noah Feldman's actually here. He can describe the moment. So, Noah, why don't you start by telling us that? What happened on that bicycle ride? Thank you, James. I was... um Climbing up Old La Honda, which is an extremely beautiful Californian uh, hill that was much too difficult for me to climb on my bicycle. And I was probably a little bit oxygen deprived. And, you know, the brain starts to do funny things. And I had been thinking a lot in that context about two subjects. One was how constitutions come into existence. I had just finished a long brick of a biography of James Madison, the lead drafts person of the U.S. Constitution. I'm not sure anybody read it, but at least it got me thinking. And um, the other thing I was thinking about was how free expression in the world was really in a crisis because of Facebook and other social media platforms and because of the tremendous competing pressures, both to shut down more expression on the platforms because of the danger that the bad kind of expressions cause that you were alluding to, and also because of the countervailing risk that all of the pressure that would be brought to bear on Facebook would be pressure to take down content. And of course, that would mean that Facebook was in the position of being a censor 
and thereby limiting content. And if much discourse takes place on social media platforms, then you have too little speech. And somewhere in this ride, um, it hit me that what we need, what Facebook needs, it wasn't, it wasn't we in my mind at the time, what they need is some kind of a solution in the form of a Supreme Court, a constitutional court that would do some of the heavy lifting of balancing the very difficult, almost impossible to answer competing concerns of what content needs to be suppressed and what content needs to be permitted. And so what happens when you ride down the hill? What happened next? Well, on the way down, I, of course, started to play out how it would look in practice. You know, no sooner had I gotten to the top and said, I've got this great idea. And on the way down, I thought, well, wait a minute, how could this actually be done? And so the way down, which is always a little bit easier, was thinking, you know, look, could you have something that was genuinely independent? And then I thought, well, um, a government could do it. And perhaps in Europe or elsewhere, governments might impose regulation where they do such a thing. But in the US, the government can't do it because of the US First Amendment. The US government basically can't lawfully serve as this kind of a censor. And so then I thought, well, could a whole industry do it? And I said, well, in principle, yes, but why would the rest of the industry want to associate itself with Facebook or undertake such an experiment? I thought really, as a first step, only Facebook itself could do it and would have to do it by spinning out a lot of its powers that presently rest in the senior leadership in in Sheryl Sandberg, uh, in Mark Zuckerberg. And so whether this is practicable just totally depends on whether they think that they no longer want to do the job of themselves sitting there in meetings and deciding whether, you know, Holocaust denial is hate speech or Holocaust denial isn't hate speech, which is, you know, genuinely, I think. I'm going to cut Noah off here because the thinking that follows involves not just him, but also Stephen Levy, who's Wired's editor-at-large and the author of Facebook, The Inside Story. You're going to hear, too, from Poppy Wood. She's senior advisor at Reset, which is focused on resetting the internet for democracy, and she previously worked for two years as an advisor in Downing Street on tech policy. And Alexi Mostras, who's editor here at Tortoise and who puts out our weekly Tech Nation Sensemaker newsletter, is joining us, too. I should explain that a thinking is at the heart of what we do at Tortoise. We're a slow newsroom, and the thinking is an open news meeting, a deliberate effort to hear competing views and then come to a clearer sense of what to think. And this series of podcasts, we're taking the thinking, our system of organised listening, our forum for civilised disagreement, and over the course of six conversations, trying to make sense of the battle for truth. As you'll hear, rather than admire the problem of trust and truth in the internet age, we've chosen to kick off by trying to think about possible, even just partial, answers. We try, at least, to frame the answer to perhaps the knottiest question of our times. Who will set the rules for the internet? You're going to hear that regulating content at internet speed and scale, something that seemed impossible, is in fact doable. You'll hear too that there's a real, and I think worrying, prospect of the US setting the rules for the internet worldwide, but rooted in America's own political culture and preoccupations. You'll hear what to me felt like a really useful distinction between freedom of speech and freedom of reach. And you won't have to listen too closely to hear what the architect of Facebook's Supreme Court thinks should be its judgment in the case of Donald J. Trump. Businesses can, of course, come up with the most anodyne names, particularly for the most interesting things. And so Noah's idea of Facebook Supreme Court became the Facebook Oversight Board. Yes, that's right. Our subject today is the Facebook 
oversight board. Because in its own way, isn't this an admission of failure? Both government's failure to regulate and the company's unwillingness to do so. Poppy Wood, what did you think listening to Noah? Do you think that from what you've seen of the oversight board, it has created a real court for the internet? I think in the absence of regulation, it's an admirable agenda. Um, But, you know, it's an unelected upper chamber overseeing an unelected lower chamber. This is not the same as as oversight and proper proper regulation. Um, it, it all sounds you know very very grand and, and powerful, but the opportunity to affect change is, is very limited. It's not involved in the overwhelming majority of cases, it takes a, a long time for cases to be referred to it. Um, it's not about testing the actual law, it's about testing Facebook's own rules. And it makes a whole agenda about content rather than upstream prevention of harm and viewing these... What do you mean by that, Poppy? Just explain upstream prevention. It it becomes entirely a freedom of speech agenda, rather than looking at how this content is being promoted broadly across the platform. So the the Oversight Board views cases that has been referred to it in isolation and looks at whether or not it has breached Facebook's own own terms and conditions. It's irrelevant to look at these individual pieces of content at the front end of Facebook if it can't look at them in the broader context and get to the heart of what's driving this content, which is the algorithmic back end. And that's where I think the the limits of the oversight board really are that it's focused exclusively on content and not being able to get to the heart of what's driving that, which is the algorithms. It's cases rather than systems. Absolutely. Uh, Alexi Mostras, Alexi, can I bring you in to do something entirely partial, which is, if you like, to make the case against Facebook Supreme Court, against the oversight board? Yeah, sure. So I've been thinking about this a bit, and I think that their problems can be divided into three categories. Problems of content, um, problems of structure, and third, specific problems relating to Trump. So problems of content, a couple of um, examples of how that works. There's There's a problem of quantity. So since the Facebook board started accepting cases in October 2020, They've had more than 150,000 cases appealed to them. How do you deal with that in practice? They've heard about five, and Facebook are not obliged to read across decisions from one case to another. So that whole idea of how one decision affects the ecosystem hasn't really been worked out. And secondly, there's obviously a problem in convening a global court to lay down moral rules that cut across multiple nationalities. So even in the testing of the oversight board, there were major differences, as you'd expect, between what, for instance, was acceptable in Italy and what's acceptable in Nigeria. But over and above those kind of inherent issues around content, there's also particular problems around structure. So the board can only reverse decisions to take down content. It can't reverse decisions made by Facebook to keep content up. And a lot of people would say that that's half the problem with misinformation. So their powers to affect content are automatically already limited in that quite important respect. Secondly, as I mentioned, the decisions aren't actually binding on Facebook in the same way as a Supreme Court setting down a precedent would be binding on any lower courts that came under it. And and third, and I think that this is potentially a problem that can be ironed out. There's a problem of transparency. So is it fair to call this a court when you can go online and watch the Supreme Court making a deliberation, 
but you can't even know who the five members are of individual Facebook oversight board panels that will decide on individual cases. So on the Trump case, for instance, out of the 20 members of the Facebook board, as I understand it, five will decide that case. But we don't know who they are. And we can't go into a room while they're making a decision. We don't know how that works. So the court analogy is query how accurate that is. Alexi, forgive me. I'm just going to interrupt you because for all the many miracles of podcasting, the one thing you can't quite get are people's facial expressions on a Zoom call. Uh, and if you just picked up Noah's, you'd know that you want to hear his his response to those things. And, and I wonder actually, Noah, whether or not we could do those things in turn, content structure and Trump separately. And in particular, I suppose the question about content, which is this question about scale and to an extent speed, whether it's just simply impossible to regulate a platform where content is being uploaded at a speed and scale that is, you know, beyond the human, beyond just the national local conversation. The scale is very grave challenge. And At the moment, that challenge rests not with the oversight board, but with Facebook itself, and specifically with the algorithmic tools that it uses not to choose to promote content in the first place, which I'll come to in a moment, but with the algorithmic tools that it uses to take down content that offends its terms of service or that spreads misinformation or that does other kinds of serious social harm. There, I think you have to think of it the way we think about large states and how they enforce laws. In principle, it ought to be impossible to enforce the law in a country of 300 million, certainly in a country of a billion. And yet there are institutions that do an maybe not perfect, but a reasonable job of doing so. And yet we don't trust that those institutions, police, let's say, will always do a good job. We have institutions of oversight to make sure, at least in a democracy, that they're doing the best job that they can be given the circumstances. Seen from that perspective, of course, it will not be adequate in the long run just to have a single independent court or independent oversight board. That would not be sufficient. I think Poppy is entirely right about that. But this is an experiment, and this is the first step of the experiment. And over time, I very much hope that Facebook and other platforms will experiment with much more expanded and extended forms of devolved governance, like the structure of courts that Alexei was referring to. I will say that I do think that the oversight board does have binding authority on the decisions that it issues, and it can then overturn any deviant decision by Facebook subsequently. And in that sense, it is literally modeled on the way that courts operate with respect to to precedent. Just on your point about the first step, will you just pick up on Alexi's point? You're in the States, I'm in the UK. The truth about the Facebook is that it's a US-based company that operates globally, The implication of a global oversight board is that it answers initially, or at least in the first instance, the concerns that dominate its thinking inside the US. And the point that Alexei was making was that there is something undemocratic and culturally insensitive about having something that tries to make decisions, if you like, centered in the US in cultures and public squares, country by country, region by region. So when you mention a first step, is your thinking that you move to nation by nation Supreme Courts for Facebook? Well, what I was thinking is, in the first instance, national laws still apply to Facebook wherever it is. So in the UK, in France, in Germany, it's already the case. There will be regulatory schemes created democratically by legitimate governments that impose standards that Facebook will be obligated by law to follow and that it will follow and that it is committed to following. It can't operate uh, in those countries, rule of law countries, without adhering to local law. 
And that will include a lot of content regulation, potentially, as it already does in Germany. And so if those countries decide that they, their people wish to impose regulatory standards that differ from those that the oversight board will use, those are the standards that are going to prevail, certainly in terms of taking down content. So that's the first, the first point that I would make. This is not in any way a substitute for regulation when governments wish to regulate. And it's in the charter of the board that it can't obligate Facebook to do anything that would make Facebook violate local law. Now, you might have some countries that say, our only regulation is that we require all platforms to have an internal mechanism for managing these, these problems and cases, because those countries, again, democratically would decide they don't want to do the heavy lifting of the regulation themselves. And that may be true for some countries. I think you'll see a range of different options. I, I appreciate that, but, but I just want to understand whether you think that the oversight board should operate nation by nation. I think, so the oversight board has 20 members now that will probably be expanded substantially over time. They're already from all over the world. They will continue to be from all over the world. I think it would be very difficult to have separate oversight boards for each country. And I also think it would be, in my view, unwise to, to try to do that because the effort that Facebook has is to produce a global platform. And so Facebook ought to have global principles and standards that it believes are valid no matter where it's operating, subject to the very real constraint that different countries have the democratic right to impose their own rules and regulations. And when the people of those countries have made those decisions, I would say provided that those rules and regulations are created by a democratic state. I think it's harder when Facebook has to you know, face down an authoritarian or autocratic government, um, there it's not obvious to me that Facebook ought to comply. But it is Facebook's policy that it complies with local laws, even if the government is illegitimate. I'm just speaking, you know, as I am throughout this conversation, entirely for myself. Stephen, if you would. It shows how the board is, is evolving. You know, Lexi mentioned that the board can't comment on the content that's been left up, that someone complains it should be taken down. Actually, today they announced that and as was their plan all along, they were starting to do that. So news that just fresh off the, the emails about that. And I think that it shows we're going to see evolution in this board. There was one really interesting thing that in the first set of decisions that people really didn't notice was that in one of the decisions they ruled on, it had been, you know, the, the piece of the offending piece of content was taken down by the poster. And Facebook said, don't rule on this to the board. It's moot. And the board said, sorry, we're not going to do that. We're going to reinterpret the rule that we can rule on it anyway. And to me, that's an indication that maybe the board is not going to blindly respect all the lines that were drawn with Facebook in its charter. My hope for the board is that at some point it will go rogue and address things like the algorithms that Poppy was talking about that are so critical to way content appears on Facebook. You know, there's been indications that some of the members of the board are concerned about that, and they actually would like to get to that issue in their, in their rulings and, and suggest to Facebook that they should use different principles in, in their algorithms. To me, the best possible outcome would be, since the board is independently funded, it would say, you know what, we're going to alter this charter to, do, to go beyond what Facebook wants us to do. Can I just poppy? Can I just, but before uh, I go back to Noah, just to talk about the structure points that Alexi mentioned, I, I do just want to pick up on this idea that somehow the Facebook Oversight Board will be able to dovetail with nation by nation regulation on platforms and content. And you obviously thought a bit, a bit about this within the UK government context. 
But so far, is it fair to say that governments have really struggled to figure out a way to set rules for internet operators? And if so, why? It's very difficult. Uh, and it has taken, yes, it has taken time. But, you know, uh, Noah, you were talking about national jurisdictions making their own content legislation and the Oversight Board um, having to, you know, that taking priority over decisions by the Oversight Board. Um, if you look at what's cooking, being cook- cooked up in the UK and in Europe, it's really not content regulation that's being devised as a way of managing this problem. The best regulation is looking at risk mitigation rather than at content because... Explain that. Sorry, Poppy, explain that. So the UK agenda, the online safety agenda and what's happening in the EU with the DSA, Digital Services Act, focuses on platforms identifying harms before they arise and reducing their spread when they do. So to avoid getting to a situation when we're talking about keeping content up or taking it down. And that's accounting for the difference between freedom of reach and freedom of speech. You know, Facebook likes to roll out the the public square analogy. It's the public square of the internet. Anyone can show up and speak. But of course, in a public square, um, you're speaking to the audience that has opted in to hear you. And maybe you have a megaphone and you manage to get your message across to some passers-by. But by no means by speaking in a public square do you have a right to reach the widest audience possible. And I think there's some confusion about that with people when they engage online. It's not just about Facebook, it's about all of these platforms, that people feel that they have a right to freedom of reach, and that's just not the case. So the UK government and the DSA um, that's being developed by the European Union, is really looking at how do we reduce the spread of harmful content and really, really tries to avoid content being taken down where it's legal. It helps platforms by making definitions about what's illegal speech and what's legal speech. But then within that says, look, platforms, this stuff is not very sexy. Okay, this is this is risk assessment. This is monitoring. This is audit. The, the risk, the risk of the spread. Exactly. Poppy, can I stop you? Because if I, I just want to make sure that I understand this right. It feels like we're then talking about two, if you like, completely different worldviews in terms of addressing this problem. On the one hand, you've got, if you like, the Supreme Court analogy, the Oversight Board, which case by case takes issues which themselves then are symbolic of uh, behaviours online and provide precedent for Facebook and its behavior. And then there's the harms outlook, which says, actually, what we're worried about is the real-life impacts, the outcomes. And what we're going to do is we're going to establish guardrails that try to try to limit the spread of damaging information. And so those are two different worldviews. One is a, a regulatory one, and the other one is a is a is a legal one. Noah? I don't think the distinction is is quite as sharp as you you describe even in in Poppy's formulation. I do think that there is a question of whether speech should be prohibited altogether or whether it should be allowed, but only allowed to exist in some corner of the internet. And that is a distinction that one could draw. But I think that the Facebook oversight board already, and certainly in the way that it's likely to evolve, and especially in the terms that, that Stephen was talking about, is pretty likely in the long run to be interested in spread, not only in whether something does or does not remain up. I see that whether or not it remains up is just a good first step for the board to learn what it's doing and to address some hard questions. But over time, it's going to have to think about their greater issue. And I think here I would just note in response to Poppy's point, I think listeners should ask themselves, would you trust the government to decide not only on what ideas should or shouldn't be permitted, but on how broadly certain ideas would be allowed to spread that are nevertheless 
legal. That's a very difficult judgment. And if you say something is false, then there might be a reason to restrict it. But what if you just think it's misleading in some general sense, but you're not certain that it's false? That raises really hard questions. And those are the kinds of questions that not only regulators, but lawyers would also want to think about. You can imagine a newspaper where the government says, well, you can't sell this newspaper because if you sell it, those ideas will spread. Right? That doesn't sound so good, even though technically the government would be allowing one copy of the newspaper to be printed. It would hardly be the freedom of the press. But, but no, you, 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 we sort of skipped past the question of scale, because there's a question here also, which is whether it's doable. Is it possible, you talked about policing 300 million or a billion people, is it possible to police the volume of content online? Yeah. I mean, it's not possible to police it perfectly. It's only to po- possible to police it with substantial error rates and with good institutional mechanisms in place to deal with those error rates. But can it be done? Yeah. I mean, the business is, I mean, think of it this way. Material is being promoted algorithmically online at that scale. And so material can be downranked or not promoted or suppressed at that scale, just not perfectly. You know, And so as the technology develops, it's two-directional. It's technology that can promote speech and it's technology that can demote or suppress speech. All right. Well, let's, uh, Pop, you just wanted to come back in? Yeah, certainly. I see the question about overreach uh, by governments and, and is it for government to decide what spreads at scale? But at the moment, and Noah, you went on to, to say that, what's determining what's spread at the, is algorithms. And I think much better to have elected government steering regulators on the harms that play out online rather than platforms but it's the best we've got. And particularly in, in liberal democracies, it's something that governments are thinking very, very carefully about. Of course, uh, reg- regulation by certain state actors in this space is very worrying. And there's some bad examples of regulation. But if you look at the UK and the EU, they're really trying to ensure that they preserve freedom of speech as much as they can. And in my mind, much better to have people who've really thought about this and thought about harm reduction rather than algorithms that are trained to focus on the bottom line. So, so Poppy, let, let's address that, because in different ways, you and Stephen, with his kind of dream of a rogue oversight board, and Alexi, his worry about structure, all point to the same direction, which is, and it's this suspicion, Noah, that to an extent, the thing that you've created or inspired lets Facebook off the hook, because in prosecuting individual issues, individual cases, you don't go after the systemic problems, as Poppy says, with the, with the algorithm, with anonymity, with a, with a whole host of things that are endemic to the way in which Facebook works. Should the Supreme Court, should the Oversight Board be able to go after the business model itself? I haven't noticed anybody letting Facebook off the hook. I didn't notice it in your introduction, James. And I, in conversation with people that I know or people I encounter, I haven't seen that yet. And nor do I anticipate that it, it would be the case. I mean, one of my views about the way the world operates these days is you can't beg, borrow, or steal transparency. Uh, and you can't beg, borrow, or steal legitimacy. You actually have to earn it because everybody's watching. So the oversight board will gain legitimacy if it makes good decisions. And if it knuckles under to whatever Facebook wants, it won't be seen as legitimate. Um, so you know that remains to be seen. We'll, we'll talk about tr- the Trump decision. And I think that, that lays out a good example. I mean, if they just rubber stamp what Facebook did, I don't think they'll be seen as terribly legitimate. Um, that said, Will the oversight board expand its reach? Yes. And that doesn't have to be by going rogue, as Stephen said. It can also be that if it works well and Facebook sees that it's gaining legitimacy, Facebook may be prepared to confer greater decision-making authority on the oversight board, including on front-end questions like how the algorithms work 
and questions that potentially implicate the business model in serious ways because it's in Facebook's interest to do so. You can't get a, you know, a company that's responsible to its shareholders to do something if it's not in the company's self-interest. You know, the company has a fiscal duty, as, as a fiduciary duty to its shareholders to act in its own interest, but its interests may correspond in this instance to devolution of power, including over questions of algorithmic reach, because it's very costly to Facebook to be seen as merely interested in its bottom line. The company does not want to be seen that way. And if you imagine yourself in the position of its, of its managers and owners, you know, what's motivating them each morning is not making money. They, they have enough money. Um, what's motivating them is for the company to be thought well of and to be a net positive contributor to the world at a moment when many, many people clearly don't see the company that way at all. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, so why don't we take, because A, it's one that we can all understand and heaven help us, we've all got views on, is the, the Trump decision, the quote-unquote indefinite ban that Facebook imposed on Trump following the riot on Capitol Hill, depending on the point of view, assault on Capitol Hill on January the 6th of this year, 2021. Stephen, why don't you just set out, if you like, what you think is at stake in the, in the oversight board's decision on Donald Trump? I think in a way too much. I think the timing is not good. And Facebook did not do the oversight board a favor by kicking this essentially political question to the oversight board and is guaranteed to make enemies. Essentially, the issue at hand is a balance between letting a public figure express himself in this case and whether a public figure should follow the policies of Facebook. In Trump's case, Facebook had decided previously that because he was a public figure, first as a candidate and then as the president of the United States, that they would keep up his content, even if it violated Facebook's policies about hate speech 
and, and other things. Then they ruled that there were some things that were so dangerous or hateful in terms of inciting violence that they might have to like tag or label some of the things. And then ultimately, after the insurrection of the Capitol, they took him down in, entirely, uh, indefinitely, but not necessarily permanently. And by making this decision something that the Oversight Board is going to have to rule on, I think this is something that they suggested to the Oversight Board. The other pro- way that they get their cases is that they choose the cases that are appealed by people whose content was taken down or going forward, people who thought the content left up shouldn't be taken up. So I think you know whatever they decide is going to make enemies of the Oversight Board. So I I think it's unfortunate for the board that they're going to make this decision at this time. No, I'll give you a read on the Trump case. Well, Stephen's right that it's soon in the life of an institution to make what will probably be its most consequential decision in a long period of time. In a perfect world, it would have been lovely to have had six months or a year for the commission to, to get its feet wet and to build legitimacy. But the world doesn't always correspond to our plans. And the truth is it would have been preposterous for the board to exist at all if it did not have a chance to review this hugely consequential decision that the company made. So it's going to happen and it's going to be trial by fire. I think Stephen is right that there will be some people angry at the board either way, and that's fine. Um, The test will be, can the board come up with a solution that both acknowledges that there are real free expression issues, even for Donald Trump, if I may say so. I mean, I'm not a supporter of Donald Trump. I testified in front of Congress that he ought to be removed from office. I, I excoriate him in every way, but he nevertheless has some free expression, interests, and rights, and 70 million people plus voted for him. And on the other hand, the fact that Facebook has rules and Trump, in at least several instances, very clearly violated those rules. So what I'm hoping is that the board will be able to say something along the lines of, listen to Facebook, if you want to deplatform somebody, anybody, but especially someone so significant, you have to cross your T's, you have to dot your I's, you have to be very clear. He's violated strike one, he's violated strike two, now comes strike three and he's out. Trump has violated one or two, let's say, but he has not perhaps violated the third. Um, So he's reinstated, but on the condition that he continues to follow the rules. And if he fails to, he can be off and off permanently. I would like to see something clear in that regard that's clarifying. So so two questions of process then, Noah. Question one is, how do we, the public, gain trust in Facebook, the principle of free speech and political representation, all of which are at stake in this particular case, if we can't see or hear the process of deliberation, the case on both sides? It's question one in process. And question two is, once that decision is made, how do we have confidence that it rolls out for everyone else who violates uh, standards of truth and incitements to violence? In constitutional courts around the world, we don't hear the private deliberations of the judges or the justices. We hear two sides make an argument if it's an adversarial system, and we might hear a few questions being asked. Um, And then subsequently, what we get is a written decision that articulates the different points of view. And in some systems, they they don't even have an oral argument prior to the decision making. People just put in written submissions. So the Oversight Board's decision in that sense will be just as transparent as the decision of any constitutional court from around the world. It will offer reasoning, it will have to acknowledge the costs and the benefits, and it will talk about Facebook's arguments, and it will presumably talk about Trump's arguments that that he may have raised as well. Trump is free to go out into the public right now and explain why he thinks he should be reinstated. Facebook has already made public statements about why they think he should be taken down. So I think the public discourse is already out there, and I think to that extent, it's highly transparent. Sorry, no, no, this is, 
obviously this is not my mastermind subject, but justice being done and being seen to be done, there is a vast difference between the public discourse or the debate that's slugged out in the media and the debate that might be had within a courtroom. And I would have thought that someone who cares about Supreme Courts wants a transparency in the process of the case on both sides before you come to read the decision. I do like the idea of publicly available briefing, but I also don't think that the Oversight Board needs to replicate the, at least in the US, 75-page briefs that are often submitted on both sides of an issue. Would you not think, sorry, would you not think, though, that actually the 75-page briefs themselves would be part of us coming to understand what is and what is not permissible and the thinking behind that? Yeah, they're available out there. They're available. Nobody, I mean, you could go on the Supreme Court's website in the US and read them, but nobody does. I mean, no, but I'm saying you can't go, you can't do that with, with the oversight board. I think if Trump wished, he could tomorrow release the document that he submitted, if he did submit the document to the oversight board explaining his views. And has Facebook submitted its document? Yeah, I mean, I think Facebook's submission will be essentially what Facebook said publicly when it made its decision A, to take down Trump, and then B, to. Um, to submit the issue to the oversight board. I think that is what Facebook essentially will be submitting. I don't think there are any other longer submissions. We didn't design this to, you know, have, you know, as I said, 75 page uh, briefs going in, although, you know, they could be posted publicly if people wish to. So I don't, I don't think there's no hidden discourse here that's, that's going on. The, the conversation will be out there. What will not be a public is the internal conversation of the board members in precisely the same way that it's not public. You know, when the UK Supreme Court you know, late lamented uh, committee of the House of Lords, and now the UK Supreme Court um, decides something. And uh, no, just to touch on that point about the waterfall, what happens if they do decide to reinstate, or if they do set rules by which you're going to be deplatformed? How do those cascade to all the other people who you know abuse their position on any of the Facebook platforms? Well, it's in the charter that Facebook agreed to that Facebook will be bound by a decision like that, not only in Donald Trump's case, but in all future cases. You know, so if the oversight board says, look, these are the rules you must follow to deplatform somebody, then that will apply to you and to me as much it will as it will apply to Donald Trump. And if Facebook doesn't do a good job of implementing that, um, the oversight board will come back and say, you're not doing a good job of implementing the orders that we've put in place. Stephen. That's not my understanding that the board is, is going to be able to tell Facebook how to deplatform people in general. I thought this was just um, you know, uh, something regarding Trump and it's up to Facebook to, they can make a recommendation about uh, the way Facebook goes forward, but it's up to Facebook to accept that recommendation or not. Isn't that the case? I don't understand it that way. The, the way I understand it is that the board has two kinds of powers. It can make a definitive decision in a given case based on principles and rules. And then those rules are the rules that Facebook agrees to follow going forward. That's like any court, right? The court decides a case. Technically, it only binds the parties in that case, but the lower courts follow it because they know that if it goes back to the highest court, the highest court will strike down their decision unless they follow those rules. Then separately from that, the oversight board also has a recommendatory power where it can go beyond the facts before it and say, we think you should do thus and such in general. And that is just a recommendation. And Facebook doesn't have to follow that unless it chooses to. So I see that as as bifurcated in that sense. Poppy, can I ask you to do the difficult job, if you like, of reading across from what's essentially a private sector innovation to the future of public regulation. I don't know whether you saw, but Noah some months ago talked about the precedent in by which private courts actually in certain jurisdictions ceded 
public courts, the one could lead to the other. And I, I wonder whether you see, Poppy, what's happening with the oversight board with this Facebook Supreme Court being a precursor, if you like, to some kind of public body that would have oversight, not just over Facebook, but over all internet platforms. Not really for the UK and Europe. I think the Oversight Board is a really US-centric agenda. And the, the Trump decision in particular, um, of course, it, it's not, whatever the board decides, it's not going to rebuild trust in Facebook. This is a political decision. You'll have 50% of people who think he should be reinstated and 50% of people who think he shouldn't in the US. I don't think regulators and, and officials in the UK and in Europe looking at the Facebook Oversight Board as the paragon of how to deliver this agenda. As I've said, the, the regulators over here are much more looking at the systemic issues, are looking at the business model, are looking at algorithmic promotion of content and division. And all of this stuff is just worlds apart from what's happening, I think, at the Oversight Board. And therefore, you would buy a poppy of this idea of this three-way split in internet cultures that... The US goes one way for reasons of the First Amendment that Noah mentioned, that China and um, its internet culture goes another way for reasons of Communist Party being in charge, and that Europe goes a third, that Europe has a systemic approach that's different. The best approach, of course, is a global one, but that's that's never going to happen. And certainly, um, it would you know, the platforms themselves are calling for government intervention here. Um, and uh, the best thing for them would be global standards, of course, but that's kicking things far down the line. So you've got you've got to go with with what governments are, are able to do and their different approaches. I think I think the US um, will come further than it has done over the course of the next few years. Certainly, um, the UK's agenda started years ago and isn't even in law yet. These things really take time perfect world, of course, there'd be a global standard and it would be robust. But at the moment, we're looking at first mover advantage. And there, it's, it's not just the UK and Europe, Canada, Australia, lots of nations are really trying to get to grips with this. I think the US, for lots of reasons, has been further behind. But it, certainly, if you look, you know, the First Amendment shouldn't stop regulation in lots of forms for the internet in the US, if you look at regulation, um, even for, for kids online and what can be done there, and it certainly doesn't stop the systemic approach or the business model approach. There's plenty that can be done, but the, but the UK and Europe has made a head start, I'd say, and I think it's it's looking it's looking pretty promising. So, so Noah, let me let, let me let me assume that you do get invited back to Sheryl Sandberg's for a you know weekend at some point in the not too distant future, you get on the bicycle again and you think to yourself, right, well, take on board what you've heard from Stephen and Alexi and Poppy that, yes, okay, you can see it's a first step. It could be a PR move. It could be a big regulatory step. It could be both. But there are issues here about the content that is addressed and the content that's not, about whether or not it's a systemic answer or whether it's a case-by-case answer, and perhaps most importantly, how it's going to relate to government regulation uh, as opposed to just being self-regulation. And you're back on the bicycle thinking, right, which of those problems do we want to address next and how do you go about it? Well, I think they all need to be addressed over time. Um, but as, as you hint, one wants to roll out um, experiments one at a time rather than trying to solve everything in one fell swoop. I think uh, a very valuable next step would be to think about, um, Poppy mentioned that an oversight board by its nature isn't involved in most daily decisions. 
an interesting question to ask would be, are there ways for Facebook to devolve power so that there's independent and transparent decision-making not driven by the business model all the way through the range of important decisions? Um, Another important question to think about would be, um, are there structural issues that could be addressed not only by an oversight board, but also by other independent entities that might be ruled out or imagined in the future that do touch on front-end algorithmic decisions um, and that therefore are more closely connected to the issues that European regulators are thinking about. Because again, the European regulators may end up saying some version of, we insist that you have a mechanism in place for considering and deciding about the spread of information that is dangerous, rather than saying, here are our precise substantive standards that we're going to apply case in and case out. So if they are to say that, then perhaps the institutions within Facebook that make those decisions shouldn't be the same ones that lead right up to the senior leadership. Maybe they should also be independent in some meaningful sense and more transparent. Um, a last issue to think about um, that I think you know Mark Zuckerberg has been thinking about for many, many years, long before I ever met him, um, is how to get different kinds of legitimate public input into decision-making. You know, Facebook's not a company, but it is a kind of a community, a new kind of a community, if that word can be applied to 3 billion people. It's not a democracy, but are there ways to get public input that are meaningful, that would not fall prey to some of the problems of so-called democracy on the internet, you know, which can lead to perverse results? I think the punchline would be the technology of social media is unlikely to disappear. And if it's not Facebook that's doing it, you know, others will also be doing it. It will evolve because technologies evolve. That technology has the kind of power and capacity, both on the negative side and on the positive side, that it needs to be subjected to regulation that comes from governments in part, for sure, but that also comes from internal concern about ethics. What we need are institutions that would enable a better job of addressing those questions legitimately and and transparently, and with the decision-making further and further away from the people who just by, by chance turn out to be the people running the company. Noah, thank you. Uh, Poppy, Stephen, Lexi, thank you. I know that we are just at the uh, end of our time. I wanted to just say, though, I-, I acknowledged when I went into this that I wasn't exactly that my mind was made up, but I did have some clear views. What's been quite fascinating and for me fun about this conversation is a lot of them have been thrown up in the air. So I went into this thinking the real obstacle here is how do you regulate the content of the internet? How do you regulate at that scale and at that speed? And actually, I'm quite reassured that that is, that is doable, that we'll get to the tech that enables us to do it imperfectly, as you said, Noah, but that it's, that it's an achievable ambition. What becomes much more difficult and what's equally clear is this tension between government and corporate. You know, the, the, if you like, the kind of Madison Facebook tension, which is, you know, we want our governments to have the powers to do things, but we don't necessarily want them to use them. We don't want governments to censor freedom of speech. At the same time, we've recognized that companies are not able and probably don't have the capability to make these choices. And the tension between the people that have the power, but we don't want them to use it, and those who have the power but are not capable of uh, administering it is a real one. And I can understand much more clearly what that problem is. I do think that, Poppy, your point, which I hadn't heard before about the difference between freedom of reach and freedom of speech, is hugely helpful because because what that manages to do is diffuse a huge range of issues. You know, freedom of speech is a political principle, is a value. Freedom of reach feels much more like a matter of industrial design. You can help uh, go about fixing that. So I think that is a distinction that's helpful. I should say, 
Two final things that really struck me. One is I am really unsettled and unnerved by the idea or the reality of U.S. dominance of online jurisdiction in the way in which, and perhaps a product of, its dominance of online innovation. And that one of the consequences of a global oversight board is that you will have echoes of the problems in Myanmar, echoes of the WhatsApp problem in Brazil, because there's not regional jurisdiction at this age. It all goes up to a global Facebook oversight board. And as a result, the issues of Donald Trump, the issues that convulse America, are the issues that determine online behaviors. And there's a US hegemony in terms of online culture that will come as a result of this. And that's something I think we should worry about greatly. But I'm really struck, if anything, Noah, at the end by the fact that this innovation is probably going to be more important rather than less than I thought at the beginning of this conversation partly because it's evolving and it's clear that it's evolving, but partly listening to you, Poppy, because I recognize quite how difficult it's going to be to introduce really effective government oversight of what happens on the internet. And so therefore, these innovations in self-regulation are going to matter more. The question that I'm left with is the question to use, Noah, your phrase, is how you police, how you enforce that quote-unquote internal concern about ethics. Because there's a personal element of responsibility here for what happens online and what happens on platforms. And it can't just be up to the judgment of those people who run these big businesses to make those calls. So I wanted to say thank you. This is a massive subject. And weirdly... We've done better in getting our arms around it than I thought we might. So that's only thanks to you. Um, a big thank you, Noah Feldman, Poppy Wood, um, Stephen Levy, Alexi Mostras. A huge thank you to you all. Uh, thanks very much. Thank you so much for listening to this thinking. And if you want to come to a thinking, if you want to take part in our efforts to understand and make the news, you can do that by becoming a member of Tortoise. You go to tortoisemedia.com, you sign up, and you can use my code, James50, to get 50% off. And when you do that, you can get all of our journalism, access to all of our podcasts and all of our reporting. And most importantly, you can come to the discussions that we hold at open news meetings, our thinkings. Please do. It would be great to see you and hear you help us make the news. Thank you for listening to The Battle for Truth. I'm James Harding. My producer is Katie Gunning. Tom Kinsella wrote the original music. And it's a podcast from Tortoise Studios, which is run by Kerry Thomas. Had you met each other before? No, we hadn't. No, it's a great, a great pleasure to meet. Likewise, when I was in government, I was working for the coalition. So Nick Clegg was was in office when I was in number ten. Uh, I haven't seen him for a while, but he's now your colleague. He used to be mine. Yes, yes, he, yes, he very much is. No, can I just check one accuracy point? I know we said, or Alexi said, that the five, it's not clear who the five members of the oversight board are who are adjudicating on the Trump case. And I thought I saw you sort of your brow furrow at that point. Is that not right? Yeah, well, I was talking partly about his transparency point. But to be precise, the five judges or board members will make a decision and then they will show it to the other 15. And if the 15 want to overrule the five, they can't. So all of the board members, all 20 of them, have input into what will be said ultimately. And the board members could choose to sign the opinion if they wish to, or they could choose not to sign it. 
and they could choose to leak who worked on which part of it if they wish to, or they might choose not to. Are there such things as dissenting opinions? Can you dissent? Yes, dissenting opinions are allowed. Yes. Fantastic. All right, thank you all. Have a very good day. Okay, take care. Thank you very much, everyone. Speak soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.